Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Here is something that doesn't usually happen. The gang is all together this week. All three of us are coming to you from the New York City offices of our friends at the nonprofit news organization ProPublica, who kindly let us borrow a conference room. And we're all here because we hosted a Stat Plus subscriber event in Manhattan on Wednesday night. It was a great conversation, a lot of fun. So uh, big thanks to all our listeners and subscribers who came out. It's Thursday, December 13th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Gilead Sciences just appointed a new CEO. That's Daniel O'Day, a pharma veteran from Roche. We'll talk about what the pick says about Gilead's ambitions and the challenges O'Day will face in one of the biggest jobs in biotech. Next, we're going to introduce you to medicine's latest buzzword, a type of DNA analysis called polygenic risk score. Joining us to explain how it all works is Cecile Janssens, an epidemiologist at Emory University. And lastly, we've reached that time of year for reflecting on the year that was. We'll look back at 2018 in biotech, recapping the biggest stories in the realms of business, malfeasance, and actual legitimate scientific progress. But first, a word about Stat Plus. If you enjoy listening to The Read Out Loud, consider subscribing to Stat Plus. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. That's 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. So after months of speculation and consternation, Gilead Sciences finally found someone to take over as CEO come 2019. His name is Daniel O'Day, and he comes from the Swiss pharma giant Roche. So Adam, who is this guy? So O'Day is a longtime Roche executive. He was most recently in charge of its pharmaceutical group, which was, uh, you know, which makes up a bulk of the of the Swiss farmers uh, revenue. You know, he has a really excellent resume. He's been an employee of Roche since 1987, and he's got a lot of oncology experience. Uh, obviously, Roche is known for its oncology business. We all we all know about their, their Genentech subsidiary. So that is an important part of uh, why he's got the job at Gilead. So over the summer, when Gilead announced its plans to find a new CEO, Adam drew up a short list of the most likely candidates to get the job. But Adam, Daniel O'Day was not on your short list. Did this pick take you by surprise? Um, he was not on my short list, but I, I wouldn't say that it's a surprise. I mean, I think he's the kind of guy, the kind of executive that you could see taking over a biotech company like Gilead. So I think, in, you know, generally, I would say that, you know, his pick has been well-received. I mean, investors feel like he's not like a flashy guy, but he's you know, very steady. Obviously, he's got a lot of experience, comes with a, you know, a great pedigree, a great resume. So somebody probably is, again, is going to do a pretty good job over there at Gilead. So when he takes the job starting next year, what are the challenges that he faces on day one at Gilead? I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about the sort of flux that they're in. So, so what is Daniel O'Day's duty? Well, like I mentioned, oncology. And I recently had a conversation with the guy at the executive at Gilead who's in charge of their oncology business. And, you know, they're a relative pipsqueak in the oncology world, but they have pretty big ambitions. So I think a guy like O'Day, it'll be interesting to see sort of where, what direction he takes Gilead in oncology, but it's clearly, I think, the fact that they hired him is a signal that oncology is a priority for Gilead. It's something that they want to focus on. You know, obviously they bought Kite Pharma. They're really big into CAR-T and and other kinds of cell therapy. So we'll see where that goes. And also we'll see, you know, where Gilead goes with immuno-oncology. Now, obviously, Roche, interestingly enough, Roche kind of really 
did not did not invest in cell therapy. They focused on PD-1s and immuno-oncology. So one thing to look for to see is whether O'Day will sort of take a Gilead deeper, more aggressively into immuno-oncology. So Bloomberg reporter Michelle Fay Cortez made a really good point on Twitter, and that was Roche, for a big pharma company, has generally been open about its work and willing to put its executives out on the stage in public. Gilead, at least from our perspective here in the media, has not really been that way. Do you think things will change under O'Day? I mean, I would hope so. I think I think Michelle's right that you know you do see the Roche executives on panels, presentations. They're out there. They give interviews. Uh, the Gilead folks, I think, you know, when you call Gilead Media Department and you, you want to talk to their executives, you get this sort of frightened, cringy sort of uh, response back. Um, so maybe O'Day will be a change there, and maybe there'll be a little bit more transparency. I mean, I don't want to say that Gilead was like, you know, it wasn't like they slammed the door when you'd call them. But again, they wouldn't really put themselves out there as much. So maybe O'Day will be sort of a new era of openness at the biotech once he gets started. So are we going to see Gilead's new CEO take the stage at J.P. Morgan, or, or what kind of debut is he going to have? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, his starting date is March 1st, which is obviously after J.P. Morgan, so I don't know whether he's going to be there. It would be nice if he was, but if that doesn't happen, it would probably be one of their quarterly conference calls, at, you know, once he starts. And so that will be an important event. Like, the first time that you sort of hear him kind of lay out a vision for the company will be, you know, something that investors will certainly key on. So one thing that has been a longtime narrative with Gilead that, you know, maybe subsided a little bit when they bought Kite Pharma, as you mentioned, is the what are you going to buy thing. Their hepatitis C business is maturing. It's not what it used to be. They changed the world with that drug, but it it isn't the revenue driver it once was. Back at Roche, I mean, Roche just over the past 12 months or so, they bought Ignita for a lot of money. They bought Foundation Medicine for a lot of money. They bought... Uh, Flatiron Health for a lot of money. And not all of those are pharma deals. They're not necessarily Daniel O'Day. But he does seem to come in with a pedigree of buying stuff. So do you expect Gilead to do more shopping once he takes over? I mean, again, so he ran the pharma division at Roche. Roche was not known as a company that made a lot of pharma type or biotech type acquisitions. Like you said, Ignita was their last deal. Um, they, they bought Intermune. A little while back, some of the deals they've done now more have been more on the sort of diagnostic or data sort of data analysis front. So he doesn't come in with that kind of like I'm a deal maker. I do lots of deals, but at the same time, it could have been just a cultural thing, right? Roche they develop drugs internally. They have an incredibly deep pipeline of their own drugs. A lot of it stemming from sort of the Genentech days. So it could have been just a cultural thing. Like that's not what Roche does. But now that he's sort of freed from Roche and that culture, and that's a little bit more conservative, he could maybe, you know, do a lot more deals under Gilead. You know which buzzword I've been hearing a ton lately, Adam? What's that, Rebecca? Polygenic risk scores. The term refers to a type of DNA analysis. And as polygenic risk scores go mainstream, we thought it'd be helpful to spend some time talking about how they work and how they're being used. So we have a special guest joining us today to give us a primer on the subject, polygenic risk scores for dummies, if you will. Uh, That's Cecile Janssens. She's an epidemiologist at Emory University. Cecile has been studying polygenic risk since 2003, long before the concept was cool. Cecile, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Cecile, tell us in the most simple terms you can what a polygenic risk score is. Okay, a polygenic risk score is a is a way to quantify the um, contribution of genes in the development of mostly common diseases, diseases that are not uh, determined by one single DNA mutation, but where both genetic factors and lifestyle factors play a role in getting the disease. 
So can I think of it like a genetic credit score that compiles all sorts of different information about me? Yeah, you can see it like that. So how is that different from, say, bracket testing, which looks at the bracket genes to gauge a woman's risk for breast and ovarian cancer? The BRCA genes, uh, when we test those, we are really searching for genetic mutations. And genetic mutations are, if you want to call it like that, are errors in the DNA, whereas what the polygenic risk scores are looking at is variations in the DNA. So the variations are not inherently good or bad, they're just different. And uh, some variations increase your risk of one disease, and the same variations may decrease the, your risk for other diseases. And for DNA mutations, it's more like if you have a mutation, if you have an error in your DNA, um, you have an increased risk of developing that disease. And that's the case when we test BSCA mutations for breast cancer. So how predictive are these polygenic risk score tests, really? Are they ready to inform decision-making in the clinic? That is a very difficult question to answer. So it really depends on uh, which disease are we talking about. For example, if we are talking about polygenic risk scores for age-related macular degeneration, those polygenic risk scores are quite predictive. And that is because there are several polymorphisms for macular degeneration that have a strong impact on the risk of the disease. But for most diseases, uh, we should look at the other end of the spectrum where the polymorphisms that are included in the score hardly predict disease um, at all. Not on their own, but even when you combine them with multiple, maybe hundreds or thousands of variants into a score, they are not really able to identify, meaningfully identify, I would say, um, individuals at substantially higher risk of disease. There's a lot of excitement about the potential for polygenic risk score tests to be used in heart disease. But you've made the point that with something like heart disease, it's not necessarily clear that people whose polygenic risk scores put them at elevated risk should be doing anything differently than everybody else. Like, shouldn't everyone be eating healthy, exercising, and avoiding tobacco? Yeah, that's true. And I think that is the, that is the biggest um, challenge uh, this, at this point in polygenic risk research. The biggest question is, do the polygenic risk scores have utility? Can we do something with the results uh, that these scores uh, generate? And will we do something differently than when we didn't have those scores? And that is really the problem, especially when researchers claim or doctors claim that the risk scores can be used to identify people at increased risk who then should be extra careful with their diet and, and exercise uh, more than, than maybe others. But I think at the end of the day, we all will have a increased uh, genetic risk and high polygenic risk score for some disease that should make us exercise more and eat healthier. So when the intervention is eat healthier, exercise more, drink less, don't smoke, I don't think that that is really a valid promise to make for the polygenic risk scores. Sort of on that same topic, I know you've been critical of some of the hype around polygenic risk scores. What claims have you seen out there that you think go a little too far in selling what these tests might be capable of? The basic claim that when people say we can identify people at high risk, I think that is, in most cases, that is simply uh, not true or it is always true. It depends on how you want to see it. So every risk distribution, whether it's based on polygenic risk or based on uh, lifestyle risk factors, every risk distribution has a two tails, one on the low end, people with low risk, and one at the high end with people with high risk. We are not interested in just knowing that there's a tail of a distribution. There's always a tail at the high end. But do those people have a substantially higher risk than the rest? That it's worth identifying them and, and giving them some special treatment that we don't give to the rest. Cecile, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Twenty 
2018 is winding to a close, and that's reason to look back on the year that was in biotech. So when we were talking about 2018 and the biggest stories of the year, they seem to fall into three broad categories. Malfeasance, counter-narratives, and actual scientific progress. Of course, let's start with malfeasance. This year saw two of the biggest biotech scandals wind towards a conclusion. Martin Shkreli was sentenced to federal prison, and Elizabeth Holmes was charged with crimes that could bring about the same fate. So I'm curious, what do you all think will be the legacy of of those two things? Did biotech learn anything from these sagas, and did they kind of change the course of, of industry history? No, it's hard to say. I mean, I think one of the narratives of the Theranos scandal was that Silicon Valley was sort of taken by um, the scheme going on there, by the what has been revealed as lies that were told by that company. But in reality, biotech investors were not the VCs who were handing over money here. They were not fooled. And so the idea that biotech even had something to learn, I think, is not entirely grounded in fact. But how about Martin Shkreli, Adam? What did biotech learn from that saga? I think from Martin, biotech learned not to be a crazy psycho and openly mock federal prosecutors. How's that? And that's a pretty good lesson. There's so many counterexamples. Just most recently, Stephen Burrill, who was accused of a crime very similar to the one Martin did with respect to defrauding investors, and he pleaded guilty and settled, and he's only spending two and a half years in prison, whereas Martin is locked up for, is it seven? Right. As we talked about before, you know, you just, when you have a target painted on your back, you don't antagonize the bull. So elsewhere on malfeasance, Novartis got pulled into the scandal surrounding Michael Cohen, who's President Trump's former lawyer, when it surfaced that the company paid him $1.2 million for Advice on healthcare, I think, was the explanation. Oh, man, that scandal feels like so long ago, but it was actually just a few months back. So no one's suggesting Novartis did anything illegal. But associating with Cohen, who just got sentenced to three years in prison, was obviously a blemish on the company. And it's one that the executives at that company took pains to de-escalate. So I'm curious, do we think that that whole scandal will have lasting effects on, on Novartis's reputation. They're obviously a giant Swiss pharma company. They have a very charismatic new CEO who they are very eager to kind of put forth in public and have him thought lead and et cetera. It does, does the Cohen saga, I don't know, does, does it disparage their future efforts? I don't think so. I mean, I think it was one of those dumb mistakes that companies make and they look back on it and they're embarrassed. But other than that, I I don't think this is going to have a long lasting impact on Novartis at all. And if you think about it in the prism of kind of Trump world scandals, this was a few days story at best. I think the cycle has moved on to many more scandals in the meantime. So finally, and most recently, there was Ha Jiankui, the scientist who shook the world by using CRISPR genome editing on embryos and then implanting them in women, which led to at least two births. We've covered the facts of that case pretty extensively on this podcast, so we'll spare you rehashing it. But I think it does say a lot that we're putting that, this into the malfeasance category. Doesn't, doesn't that say something about the impact of that episode on science and on biotech and so what's going to come? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's worth reflecting on what the legacy of Ho's experiments will be. I think it could go either of two ways, right? This could either kind of open the doors for uh, this kind of gene editing to to really take off, or it could kind of prompt a a counter reaction to kind of close the lid on this for quite some time. 
So guys, 2018 wasn't all controversy and law-breaking. There was actually some legitimate scientific progress made in biotech. Right, so on the legal side of CRISPR, the big patent dispute between the Broad Institute and the University of California looks like it's reaching a conclusion finally, and a pair of actual CRISPR-based clinical trials in sickle cell disease and a rare disorder that leads to blindness actually got started this year. And so we are soon to see our first glimpse at human data of genome editing drugs. Meanwhile, the march of gene therapy continued. We've seen some really encouraging results from one-time treatments for diseases like spinal muscular atrophy, sickle cell disease, and hemophilia. And we should also mention the first drug uh, approved based on a technology known as RNA interference. And, you know, CRISPR and, and RNAi are these sort of fairly newfangled and, and futuristic technologies. But one of the more interesting scientific stories I think this year came from a company called Loxo Oncology, which had a pill to treat cancer and, and technologically is, is sort of a yesteryear thing. But what was futuristic about what they did is they tested this in a basket of various tumor types and kind of upended FDA dogma by winning a first FDA approval for patients with various types of cancer, provided they have a certain genetic mutation, basically. And it's sort of an advance of personalized medicine, which we've heard so much about for so many years, but this was sort of a legitimate test case for it that was a success. Moving on, let's talk about the business side of things in 2018. This has been a year kind of marked by counter-narratives, where a lot of the bold predictions, either for good or for bad, that folks made at the start of 2018 didn't seem to come true. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the ones that that we were all watching pretty closely was the decision by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange to allow pre-revenue biotech companies to list their shares there. And a lot of folks over in Hong Kong predicted that this would be a very bullish market, that American companies would consider or even choose to list their shares over there rather than here in the United States, and also that local firms would take advantage of the opportunity and a cottage industry would be born. And I think what we saw instead was no American companies made that choice. And the Chinese ones that did go public there have, by and large, had a really rough go of trading since doing so. Right. I mean, you can say, look, I mean, in some ways it's been a success because they were able to get companies out and listed uh, on the exchange. So like it's a start. But like you said, the idea that this was going to kind of be a like boom times right from the beginning has not played out. And it's, you know, clearly there were some people who were saying that it was going to be rough going in the beginning. And I think that's the storyline that's definitely played out. Another one of these counter narratives, I think, has taken place in the world of cancer, and that's with immuno-oncology combination therapies. Things haven't gone very well, have they? Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a bad year for combination cancer immunotherapies. I mean, bad in that maybe expectations were a little bit too high going into the year that we were going to see a lot of these combinations of drugs that were going to, you know, benefit a lot more patients than we've seen when a lot of these drugs like checkpoint inhibitors are, work, you know, are used on their own. And what we saw were data that just kind of were mediocre at best and a lot of questions left unanswered about which combinations may ultimately succeed or fail. Another thing that didn't happen the way people thought it might is going into 2018 with the tax cut that the Trump administration managed to get through, there was a narrative that the biggest wheels of the drug industry would spend those tax savings on buying biotech companies and investors would rejoice and lots of long rumored takeout targets would finally come to fruition. That is not what we saw. To be fair, though, there were a few deals of note. Celgene bought CAR-T developer Juno, and GSK bought Tesaro. And then, of course, there was the big Takeda-Shire merger. But what we saw more of 
2018 was share repurchases, right? Companies using a lot of that cash, a lot of the windfall that they got from tax savings to buy back their own stock to boost earnings. They were doing that instead of going out and doing M&A. Which really shouldn't have been a surprise. I mean, one of the aspects of, of the tax cut that was passed was allowing companies to repatriate offshore cash at a lower tax rate than they had before. The last time the government did that, more than 10 years ago, what we saw was stock buybacks, not hiring sprees, not investments in science. So in a way, pharma shouldn't have surprised us with its decision making. Another thing that didn't happen the way it was predicted to was drug pricing regulation. I think there was a fear that 2018 would bring this crackdown on price controls, and and that did not materialize. No, it's felt like, you know, you could copy paste the same narratives from years past and this sort of boogeyman of, of Congress who may set pharma in their sights. And Donald Trump sends tweets saying this, that or the third. And there's this possibility that there'll be bipartisanship and pharma will be in the crosshairs of both parties. And it's just never meaningfully come to fruition. Well, guys, that was a good recap of 2018. Uh, of course, we didn't mention the fact that the best thing that happened in 2018 was us starting this podcast. That's true. So guys, next week will be our last podcast episode for 2018. And so I think we'll spend a good bit of time then talking about the year ahead. And we'll look at kind of the events and issues that we see that are on the radar screen or what should be on your radar screen for 2019. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. But before we go, we have a couple of housekeeping items to go through. A proud annual tradition has returned. Adam, tell us about it. Yes, it's my annual Best and Worst Biopharma CEO of the Year Awards were announced this week. So the four nominees for Best Biopharma CEO of the Year are Josh Blinker of Loxo Oncology. We mentioned Loxo before. Ludwig Hansen from Alexion Pharma. Jeff Leiden from Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And lastly, John Thero from Amrin. Those were all the Best Biopharma CEO nominees. On the other side, the worst biopharma CEOs of the year. That's kind of the fun list, right? Mark Alice from Celgene topped that list. Then we had Maxine Gowan from Trevina, Troy Hamilton from Synergy Pharma, and lastly, Richard Pops of Alchemies. So if I want to weigh in on either the best or the worst CEO, how do I do that? You can read both stories at statnews.com, and at the bottom of each story, you can vote for your favorite or least favorite Biopharma CEO. And finally, we are very excited to share that you will soon be hearing a new regular voice on this podcast. That's right. Starting in January, longtime Forbes reporter Matt Herper will be joining STAT. And you can look forward to reading his work and hearing from him directly on this podcast. So thank you to Hyacinth Emanato and Dom Smith, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about this week's episode, ask us questions, or just mention how terribly wrong we are. You could do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com, and we appreciate that feedback, so thank you. See you next week. <laughs>